Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 13 of Revelation, discussing the false prophet, the mark of the beast, as well as ideas we need to avoid when studying the mark. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Revelation chapter 13, we are looking at a very, very dark passage that I think we're going to finish up this morning. And then there's a bright spot before we descend back into the darkness of what's coming on this world once again. But let's pick up this morning. I'm going to read for context beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 13. Revelation 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast." So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even makes, he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived." He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred. And 66. Well, let's see how far we can get this morning. But yeah, I heard the chuckles there. Don't chuckle too loud. All right. It's slowly moving through, but I hope you're getting much out of this. I hope you're gleaning from this things that maybe you didn't understand before. And seeing it's really not that difficult to understand. I mean, Scripture does interpret Scripture, right? And we've seen that all along. We're going to see it again this morning. But we've been looking at this passage that a lot of people are absolutely fascinated by. Sometimes it's an unhealthy fascination because they're more interested in the things about Antichrist than they are about Jesus Christ. And, and our concern and our focus really needs to be Jesus. Yet at the same time, we can't ignore these passages. And what we're looking at is a description of the Antichrist and another beast that we'll talk about here this morning that we see rising up. 
But as we talk about Antichrist, and it's given to us here in these passages, it's been clear to us that this is not some spirit in the world, some evil attitude in the world, something that's not real, just kind of out there. This is a real person, and these scriptures make that clear. Now, I understand that in the scriptures it tells us, you know, even from the beginning in, in John's writings, John said, you know, many antichrists have come into the world. We don't doubt that. He says that even the spirit of antichrist is in the world. We don't doubt that. And yet at the same time, there are passages where he clearly says the antichrist, speaking of a very real person that will one day come. Is the antichrist in our world today? I don't know. I don't know. If I were a guessing man based on where I see the sequence of events unfolding, I'd have to think he's out there and living somewhere. He may be right in front of our nose and we'd never even realize it because it's not appointed for us. We know from Thessalonians that we are the restraining, that it's the Holy Spirit that's restraining evil in the world and really keeping the identity of Antichrist from being revealed. And it isn't until the restrainer is removed, as Paul says, that it'll become clear who he is, you see. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's presence, I think the scriptures bear that out, that it is the Holy Spirit's presence in the church of Jesus Christ that's, that's holding him back right now. And you and me, we are the church. We, the believers, are the church. And it's the Spirit's presence that's holding him back from doing what he wants to do, from, from enacting the evil things we've been studying in here, that until we're gone, he's, his identity, though we may be suspicious of some people, we will never fully know until we're gone. Now, some people say, I can't wait until I get raptured and I'm sitting with the Lord and I get to watch down and see what's happening and then I'll know who he is. You know what? I don't think we're going to care about it. One iota if we can see it all, you know, because we're going to be enjoying the wedding supper of the lamb in that moment while everything else unfolds here on this earth. One day we'll know who he is because we will come back with Jesus as we'll see when we get to the end of the book and we're going to be coming back with him when he deals fully with Antichrist. But at the same time, he's not our concern, is he? And so let's not get unduly focused, but yet let's understand what the scriptures teach. So we left off talking about him in verse 9 or verse 10 last week. And I want to pick up in verse 11 this morning because now there's a shift. Verse 11 says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So John tells us here in this verse that he sees another beast, uh, another beast. This is not the same beast. This is not Antichrist that John now is seeing and describing to us here. It's not the beast that he described to us in the first portion of this passage, but this is clearly a different player in this unfolding end time drama. Literally another in the Greek implies something different yet of a similar kind. Something different, yet of a similar kind. In other words, this beast that John now sees, and he's going to describe to us, will be a different beast from the first beast that John saw, but yet the implication that is in a lot of ways, they're going to be of the same ilk. They're going to be out the same cut of cloth. This beast will be similar in nature, similar in character, similar in purpose, yet this is a distinctly different figure, as John now goes on to tell us. He says he sees him coming up out of the earth. You know, in verse 21, he saw the Antichrist, the first beast rising up out of the sea, which we determined was the political turmoil, the social turmoil of the world and and everything that's going on, the confusion, the chaos. But he tells us here that he sees this beast rising up out of the earth. Now, 
clearly John is giving us this description in order to differentiate this beast from the first one. And although they may be similar in a lot of ways, they're also different. This is not the same beast. And at the same time, the one characteristic that both of these beasts share in common is that they are both something to be regarded as vicious and dangerous. And I say that because the Greek word used for beast in both cases in the first part of chapter 13, and now here with this one, is a word that literally translates dangerous beasts. And when used in a metaphoric sense, it literally implies a brutal, bestial man who is savage and ferocious. So despite the differences that exist between these two satanic figures, John wants us to know that in this sense, they are the same. Both of them are to, were to be wary of, both are to be feared, because both of them are dangerous, and both of them are brutal and savage and ferocious and beast-like in their natures. That's why the term beast is being applied to them. And so we did look some at this last week, but let's continue on. He says then, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. We discussed that last week, and we know that what he's implying here is that, you know, the horns speak with authority, and and the lamb gives that sense of something religious to it because it's associated with whom? Who do we see in the scriptures associated with the lamb? It's Jesus. And so there's clearly some connection to Jesus in some way in a religious sense. And and most believe, and I believe, that this person who this beast represents, when he comes, he's going to have both some form of emerging of political and religious authority, both. Both are going to be rolled together in this guy. But then it goes on in verse 12, and it tells us, it tells us in verse 12 that he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So John now indicates this beast will be in subordination to the first one. And, and he'll be leading people to him. In other words, this guy will be loyal to Antichrist to the hilt. And, and his purpose will be to support him and to promote him and to point people in his direction. And he's going to be the Antichrist's earthly cheerleader. That's what this guy will be. And, and the things he'll be doing will be done in order to get the world to do one thing, and that is to worship the Antichrist, to worship the Antichrist and to follow after him. He will, in a sense, be the Antichrist John the Baptist. Think about this for a minute. Well, John, remember when John came, he was the forerunner of Jesus to make straight the paths for Jesus' coming, calling men and women to to repentance, calling men and women to, to look to Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. This guy will be coming to, to, to clear a crooked and a perverse path before the Antichrist, leading people not to repentance, but to join with Antichrist in rebellion against God. That's what he'll be doing. And make no mistake about it, he will be coming to draw attention to Antichrist, and not to himself or to anyone else. His main message will be Antichrist. And in this sense, he will be to Antichrist and to Satan what the Holy Spirit of God is to Jesus and to God the Father. He'll be the third member of this unholy trinity, if you will. 
Just as in the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In this unholy Trinity, there will be Satan, the Father, there will be Antichrist, the Son, and there will be the false prophet who this beast represents, who will be essentially the Spirit, and yet he will be a real human being walking this planet through the process of coming to and following after and worshiping Antichrist. You see, just as we talked about previously, Satan's ultimate design is to do what? To mimic. He wants to mimic what God has done for us. He wants to mimic in this sense, and, and, and that's exactly what Satan will be seeking to do. And, and this, this is nothing new because Satan has always tried to mimic the work of God. Do you know that? I mean, just if you know your Old Testament scriptures, you know that to be true because uh, look what happened with Moses when he appeared before Pharaoh. Remember that? Moses displayed the power of God repeatedly doing all kinds of miraculous things. And what did Satan do? He, he brought these soothsayers to do the same thing. He, he performed through these guys many of the same miracles. When Moses threw the rod down and it became a snake, the magicians in Pharaoh's court threw down their rods and they became snakes too. When Moses caused the flies to appear and to overwhelm the Egyptians, the, magi- the magicians worked the same miracle, adding to the plague of flies that already existed through what Moses had just done. And the same was true of the frogs and the lice and the water turned to blood. But there was a problem for Satan in doing this because while Moses, by the power of God, could inflict these things, he could also remove these things. Moses, through God's power, was able to remove those things and to restore things to the way they were before. But these magicians operating in Satan's power, all they could do was to, re- was to compound these things. They couldn't reverse anything. They just added to the problem and couldn't eliminate it. They could only send more flies. They could only add more lice. They could only, man, it makes me want to scratch my head, add more frogs, you know, and, and, and turning the water more to blood. But they could not reverse things as Moses could. And here's the truth about Satan. He has great power. Never underestimate that. But in the end, as great as Satan's power might be, he can only add to problems. He can only add to problems. He can never relieve them. So Satan's mimic of God, no matter how powerfully authentic it might seem to be, in the end, it's extremely imperfect, and it always compounds existing problems. You know, I think of these people, and and I've read articles of people who, for the sake of their their notoriety or their careers, openly confess that they made a pact with the devil, you know, that they made pacts with Satan in order to, to accomplish what they wanted. And they seem to got, get what they want and they boast in that. But you know what? Their problems are just beginning, whether they know it or not. It may seem to be relief for the moment, but over time it will get worse. And the worst part will be on the day that they die and realize that he has absolutely no power when it comes to eternal life you know, in the presence of God the Father. But that's what we see taking place here. And this is how it will be with the Antichrist and with the false prophet. These men who will be Satan, sent by Satan, and, and they're coming to mimic what is a true work of God. But no matter how powerful they might seem to be when they first appear, in, their, in the end, they're, they're just gonna, it's, their power is going to be perverse, and it's going to be imperfect, and it won't enable them to relieve any of the world's problems, but they'll simply be compounding them in the lives of men and women living on the earth in that day. On that note, just so you know, my view on Antichrist and even the false prophet 
I honestly believe, and this is just my opinion, I believe that when the Antichrist initially rises to power, that he's not coming thinking I'm a minion of Satan. I don't think he's going to see it that way. I honestly think he's going to be one of the greatest humanists the world has ever seen. And he's want to create this utopian society, you know, and we already see that kind of stuff going on in our world today, you know, but we shouldn't be surprised because the spirit of Antichrist is at work in our world, you know. It was there when men tried to build the Tower of Babel, and it hasn't stopped ever since, you know, but I think when he comes, initially, he's going to just believe he's doing right. He's trying to institute good things. He wants to help people. He wants to help the poor. He wants to help the downtrodden. He wants to do all these things. Now, I'm not saying there isn't an element of wanting to advance himself along with it. But I think ultimately we have this view of a guy who comes just with evil power and he knows he's evil and he knows that, you know, we've seen, I'm sure you've seen the old movies, you know, if you move his hair, the 666 is on there and he can see it for himself, you know, and, but I just don't think the scriptures necessarily bear that out. You know, we looked at the riders initially and I believe one of those riders in the beginning on the white horse was Antichrist. Not Jesus, as some would promote. Jesus later comes on a white horse, but that one's connected with all kinds of evil things on the other horse riders. And so, but, but the idea of being a, a messianic figure, a deliverer of sorts, I think he'll see himself that way. I think he's going to think he's doing good. But in the end, he's just a tool that Satan's going to use. And there's going to come that point, as we talked about last week, when, when whatever happens to him that, that incapacitates him, makes it appear that he's died, whether he physically does die or not, and then seems to be resurrected back. In that moment, whether Satan has reanimated his body or fully possessed him, there will come a turning point at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into that seven-year period, where it's not going to be about Antichrist doing his thing. It's about to be Satan doing his thing through Antichrist, and it'll become clear. Everybody tracking with me on this? And so I just say that to, to make this point, you know, as we look at this, they may, you know, when they first appear, it may just seem like they're trying to do good things, but in the end, they're just going to compound the problems in the world, not make them better. So let's look at what John tells us next. Wouldn't it be simpler for people who just to yield to Jesus so he could do his thing, you know, but it's going to take this. He says in verse 13, he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So John says that when he appears, this, this false prophet, this second beast appears, he'll not only come with a message, but he'll come backing up that message with all sorts of miracles and, 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 and attention-getting kind of stuff that's going to grab the attention of the world. And there's no indication that the miraculous things that he'll be performing will be fake miracles, not some sleight of hand of some sort. Or, you know, it, 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 some suggest that, but I think it's clear here. It appears to be that when this guy comes, he's going to be performing very real signs and wonders in order to back up his spiritual claims. And again, I would tell you that while we do not need to give attention and credit to Satan's power and abilities, we also must not underestimate him when it comes to these things. Satan's power is very real. It's very real. And, and, and in many respects, his power is great. Yet, like the magicians of Pharaoh's court, his powers are limited by God and never, never is his power able to make things better in the lives of people. Even here with this satanically empowered individual 
even though the miracles he'll be performing will be very real, they're only going to compound the problems that already exist on the earth. So think about this. This guy is going to be calling down fire to the earth that will already be scorched from drought and, 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 and all of the fire that God has already sent against it as we studied earlier in the book of Revelation. I'm going to tell you, if you're going to do a miracle to impress people, why not do something helpful like send rain, you know? Why send fire? But this guy will be doing nothing more than the equivalent of one of the, 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 the miracles of the magicians in Pharaoh's court. It's going to be similar to that. I note also another interesting connection in regard to the miracles he'll be performing. Who is he imitating by doing these miraculous works? In many ways, he'll be deliberately imitating the two witnesses that we studied back in Revelation 11. Uh, God said he was going to send a minister and to preach repentance on the earth in the last days. You'll note that the miracles being performed by this satanic guy here in Revelation 13 are basically the same miracles that the two witnesses will be performing when they come. Revelation 11.5 tells us that they'll be spewing out fire from their mouth. Another way of saying that they'll be calling down fire from heaven. But the fire that they'll be calling down will be used to consume the enemies of God that come against him as they minister, you see. And we know from that passage that they'll eventually be killed, right? And that their bodies will lay in the streets for three days, but then in front of a watching world, they'll they'll be resurrected and taken up to heaven. You know, they're going to be the CNN and, you know, MSNBC and the Fox cameras and CBS cameras. Somebody's going to be filming this. They're going to see this. The world's going to watch these guys resurrected. But sometime after they're gone, this false prophet will appear. And he's going to be working similar miracles, drawing attention to Satan's power and to Satan's man, the Antichrist. He'll be mimicking the things that these guys did. And in a sense, he'll be saying to the world, see, we have power like this too, so follow us. That's what he'll be doing. And the world will be amazed. The world will be awed by what's going on. And they're going to follow him as he points them to follow the beast. And in the eyes of the deceived world, the false prophet will be answering the miraculous challenge of these two witnesses. To the deceived world, his miracles will put him in the same class as these guys. And even in the class of the great prophet Elijah himself, who 1 Kings 18 tells us that he also called down fire as a part of his prophetic ministry. But he'll simply be a satanic mimic of the true prophets of God. And he'll be mocking God through the supernatural things that he'll be doing when he comes. Now, let me divert just for a moment because I think it's an important truth for all of us to understand We live in a time when the church of Jesus Christ is getting way too focused on wrong things. And we're in a time of experiential spirituality that like we've never seen before. I mean, if you go back, you know, 1800s, even the early 1900s, yes, there's always been that element of experience, experiential spirituality as a part of Christianity, but, but not like we see it today. People were, people were, were, were founded on the word of God. That's why they gathered. It's what they studied. It's what they made their lives about. But today, the the word of God is secondary to the experience, the spiritual experience that I seek to have, you see. And and it's being given a lot of attention. And people are are looking for the miraculous. They're, they're, They're believing that if they see something miraculous happen, that it must be of God. You know, I can't tell you a number of people I've talked to who've seen something and immediately the, their conclusion is it must be of God because only God could do this as, as though it's a confirmation of his presence and his work. You know, I just think that kind of belief is a formula for disaster. 
I think it's a formula for spiritual disaster. It's, it's not that God doesn't work in, in the experiential realm. He does, and I praise him for it. And, and I'm not saying that he doesn't do miraculous things. I'm, I'm not a cessationist. He absolutely does phenomenally miraculous things. We watched him raise a guy, and I know I often reference it, but we watched him raise Scott off a deathbed. You know, we know that God does these things. God hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But at the same time, just because something miraculous takes place, it does not mean that God is necessarily involved in it. It doesn't mean that God is doing it. I like how one author states it. He said, there is a supernatural power which is against God and truth, as well as one for God and truth. A miracle simply as a work of wonder is not necessarily of God. There has always been a devilish supernaturalism in the world running alongside of the supernaturalism of divine grace and salvation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.